0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RR,
1: 102.7 in Melbourne.
0: My first guest of the morning joins us in the studio. Bernard Callio is here to talk comic books in our monthly segment drawn out. Bernard, good
1: morning. Richard Watts, hello, how are you? I'm fine and dandy. Excellent, excellent. That's News the top indeed. hat. Yeah. <laughs> And that flourishy bow tie, Mm. uh, velvet, I I, I do believe. I'm glad you (laughs) noticed. I make an effort for you, Bernard. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I am going to cough. I'm not going to uh, masticate this microphone because I've got whatever it, whatever people get in in Melbourne at the moment. But I do have uh, comics news, as always, uh, both local and international. Um, uh, so let's start uh, 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 further afield. Let's go international, and let's let's look at a couple of let's look at a couple of retirements. Let's look at a couple of people who are uh, or a couple of mm, institutions, I suppose, that are fading from the field. And one of them. Uh, we learned just recently, is that Alan Moore has hung up his pen, hung up his stylus, hung up his wand, uh, and is saying that he's uh, retiring from uh, comic book writing. Now, you know, he has said this a couple of times before, but this time he has managed to have uh, arranged the the farewell concert, I guess you'd call it, uh, to be quite a fanfare. So it's him and Kevin O'Neill, artists. So Alan Moore is a comics writer, Uh, best known for the likes of... Of, Watchman. Uh, Watchman from, from hell, hell, V for Vendetta. And of course Miracle Man, his his finest work in my in my humble opinion, um, and Swamp Thing, and Swamp Thing, also very good, and, and apparently the TV show not 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 after scratch, acts, acts after one season, apparently, really, yeah. Oh, the poor Swampy. Um, so Alan is uh, writing his last instalment in the saga of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which he and Kevin O'Neill, artist, uh, both of them British, started in 1999. So they started 20 years ago. Uh, And it's had various volumes, and this latest one coming out this year is uh, a six-issue comic book series, Uh, and uh, fittingly, exceedingly fittingly, and this is why I feel like it might actually be his swan song, uh, it is called The Tempest. And we've had a character called Prospero uh, introduced into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, cosmology before, uh, and clearly a stand-in for Alan Moore himself. Very invested in the world of magic, uh, as he is, and beards. Uh, so um, we have Prospero. Come- Apparently, I have not seen any of the issues. I'm just I'm just reading the reading the um, the biz. Uh, and, and in this, and, and and the sort of the conceit of the League of Extraordinary gentlemen as you may know even if you don't really partake of the comic book or particularly superhero world is that say marvel comics you have got all these different characters and they all come together so those big avengers films there's different separate uh, continuities and they all kind of it's a team up it's called a team up anyway alan moore's uh, and kevin o'neill's conceit for the league of extraordinary gentlemen is that all of literature all of literature indeed all of culture is a team up? Well, not all of literature; only the literature that is out of copyright. Oh, that, that is true, and it is also so, true that at, at any point in the in the story of the league, so by in in the sort of nineteen hundreds version of the league, you'd only get you know the H. G. Wells, but. You know, so it's whatever is available to the readers of the period in which that volume is set.
0: So, in the past, for example, in the the early iterations of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, we had uh, the Invisible Man, mm. Alan Quatermain, Doctor Jekyll, and Mister Hyde, Wilhelmina uh, uh, Murray. Yeah. To give, her, uh, yeah. she reverted to her maiden Indeed. name Indeed. after Indeed. that Absolutely. unfortunate <laughs> business with the Transylvanian. <laughs>
1: uh, and yes. uh,
0: then in later iterations, uh, you've had Captain Nemo, uh, Captain Nemo's daughter, and, uh, and very, uh, uh, various Alistair Crowley sure. kind of I believe, uh, types. I
1: believe uh, Prospero is also out of um, copyright. Yes. So. <laughs> But then as he of course it's become more complicated as he's got closer and closer to the present day for example the James, the James Bond character uh, there's been sort of various um, dancey fa- footsteps to get around uh, being sued the bum off by uh, uh cubby broccoli and, and and friends so yes but anyway apparently 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 uh, with this with uh, um, you know he's going to break his wand and abjure his rough magic etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but uh, th- I'm referring to Alan Moore there but but uh, apparently what he tackles in um uh the tempest this la- latest and last series is the uh ubiquity and uh, almost w- w- our, our being terrorized by superhero narratives now you know they're just all around us you can't walk past a, 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 a you know a, 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 respect- a respectable a respectable tram stop a respectable cinema without being you know having having them ju- thrust down your throat so uh so apparently he tackles that um so, so yes. Uh, look, I, I've come in and out of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series over the years. It's, it's, it's it hasn't always grabbed me, um, but I'll probably grab this. I very much enjoyed the first. League chapter. The yes, the first six volumes. Second, Second volume with the,
0: the, with the War of the Worlds. War of Worlds? Not really. It didn't quite sustain it for ah. me. Uh, then the third chapter, which was from that- 1900 through to 1960 yes. or thereabouts. Mm, yeah. And then the Nemo stories yeah. as well, which uh, self-contained, referencing some H.P. Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness those sure. kind of things. So, an intriguing series and
1: a nice note for Alan Moore to go out uh, on. Like well chosen, well chosen. Yeah. Round of, of polite applause. Uh, you know, uh, okay, so let's, let's move on. We could uh, talk about Alan Moore all day, but we won't. Uh, the, other, uh, the other bowing out, and quite significant as well, is Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine has ceased uh, uh, newsstand distribution. So they're still uh, Mad Magazine, owned by DC Comics, uh, someone else with whom Alan Moore has a longstanding stoush, stouch. <laughs> um, DC Comics publisher of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, etc. Um, uh, they have discontinued publication and they are going to m- maintain printing collections of old material and this kills me to keep their keep copyright keep the brand, keep the brand yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, now mad of course started in well it's 67 years old started in 1952 and was begun by as a comic book so we know it now as a magazine but it was started as a comic book 1950s by a genius uh, called Harvey Kurtzman, a great satirist uh, and, and, and a very, very fine comic book mind. Really, he he's the uh, mentor of Art Spiegelman, who gave us *Mouse*, the, the great graphic novel. Um, and by the time I was reading uh, Mad in the in the in the eighties, you know that was the main way I'd actually get m- movie narratives. I never saw Grease, but I knew Grease because I read them. I never saw Kramer versus Kramer. What would I be doing seeing that? But I I knew this sort of bent version of it as delineated by the beautiful Mort Drucker, uh, who's, um, who's one of the main artists for their sat- movie satires and beautiful line work in those beautiful. those comics. Beautiful and. Uh, I grew up reading old copies of Mad
0: yes. Magazine. Uh, and so the, the, the character of Alfred E. Newman, ah, or what,
1: what Me, me Worry. worry.
0: Uh, but also uh, comics like Spy versus Spy, yes. which were quite
1: iconic. Yes. And the fold-in. Yes. Al Jaffe's fold-in. Yeah. Amazing. So Rem- uh, a sad, sad to see it go. Sad to see it go. And, and, and look, there's another longer conversation there to be had about, well, what, what is the place of a satire magazine in a, in, in, in a country that we live in now, a, a digital country? where, you know, if something needs to be taken down, like as soon as something is put up, it's being taken down, deconstructed, ripped apart, eviscerated. That was all of Mad's uh, uh, shtick shtick, uh, for those 67 years. It's not necessary anymore. The Onion, what did I do some research on? It discontinued its print version 10 years ago. I mean, it still has uh, – it does online. But, you know, what – yeah, I mean, you know, obviously magazines are still produced. Anyway, blah, 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 longer conversation. Let's get local – Let's get, let's get to a wonderful book uh, by Ben Hutchings from Squish Face Studios. It's Mini Minnie uh, Mel and, and Timid, Timid Tom that a little girl and a big cat. Actually, it's a normal-sized cat and a girl who shrunk down. And this is a kid's book from uh, Ben Hutchings of Squish Face Studios in Brunswick. It is a ripper. It is I've, wonderful. I've just opened it to a page <laughs> in delighted. which – delighted. I am. <laughs> uh, because you mentioned, I just opened it at random, mm-hmm. uh,
0: and as you were ta- saying it's about a a little girl who is shrunk down. Mm. Uh, I opened it to a page where it said, "Little girl is rummaging in long grass and finds a fifty cent piece, <laughs> which is the size of her head <laughs> and as she holds it up in delight to show what uh, to Come show on. Tom the cat what she 's got, she is suddenly being menaced by magpies, and just the way it's drawn yeah. the the sequence of uh, her lifting finding the coin, lifting it up in celebration, suddenly realizing there's a mag- Magpie, <laughs> looking at her quizzically. To then, as the the panels move, so that we then realise she's slowly surrounded by threatening magpies. Yeah. it's just the 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 vocabulary, the visuals, layout, and and narrative is just so concise and it's beautiful. Yeah,
1: it is beautiful. It is delight. He, 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 he's a very. Uh, um, He's got a lot of uh, – he's bringing a lot of both uh, visual comedy and and, um, <laughs> and great di- dialogue comedy to this book. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful um, object, uh, a graphic novel. So it's a long book and it's in full colour, beautifully coloured. And uh, it's uh, – this Saturday, if you want to come in along and uh, uh, if you want to bring your – your little person, I don't know, in the 5 to 10 sort of age group, uh, 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 Ben is doing a, a workshop actually down at Readings in St Kilda, Readings in St Kilda uh, an event where he'll be signing the books but also that the kids will be able to draw, he'll teach them how to draw cats and, uh, and so that's, that's it, down at Readings really St Kilda at 10.30 on Saturday morning, so you just need to book in via the um, Readings uh, website, it's free um, but please come on down, meet Ben, uh, otherwise just go on to Squish Face Studios, 309 Victoria Street, Brunswick. It's 26 bucks, this book. It is a really perfect thing for, as I say, sort of that five to uh, 10-year-old range. I can imagine reading to it to reading it to a kid in bed as as nighttime reading. Because it looks delightful. Yeah. So it's a full-colour kind of comic novel. Uh, it's about 115 pages.
0: Yeah. Mini Mel and, and Timid, Timid Tom, Tom by Ben Hutchings. It looks glorious. Great. And just
1: yeah. just to, f- just to uh, cast forward for another Squish Face event, which is the Home Cooked Comics Festival, which is at the Northgate Town Hall on the 17th and 18th of August. The Saturday is the day of workshops and the Sunday is a day of a, 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 a trade, trade hall. So you come, you come along and you can buy and meet, meet zine makers, comic book makers. So the uh, website is homecookedfest.com. Hmm. Maybe .au, can't remember. But that's Home Cooked Comics, very, very important celebration of local comics culture, 17th and 18th of August. See you there. See you there. Bernie, right. thanks for coming in. Beauty. See you soon. See you soon. Melbourne's own.
0: RRR. Right now, though, we're going to talk about a work that is on at Chapel, off Chapel uh, in Paran. It's called Night Mother by Marcia Norman, presented by Iron Lung Theatre. Joining us in the studio, director Bryony Dunn and actor Caroline Lee. Welcome to you both.
2: Hi, Richard. Hey, hello.
0: How are you? Good. Good, good. Now, um, Bryony, let's start with you. What's the the elevator pitch for this show?
3: Okay, the elevator pitch. This is right. a intense two-hander about life. It's about two women forcing the best out of each other when the worst devastating situation hits them.
0: Sounds like it could be a bit prickly and a little bit provocative. Caroline, (laughs) what was the appeal for you uh, when you were presented with the text? Had you seen the play before or read it before?
2: No, actually I hadn't, which was surprising because it is a, a classic Really, it it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1983. So it was written, first performed in America in 1982 and then um, Marsha Norman won the Pulitzer Prize and because it's a 90-minute two-hander, Oftentimes, scenes are done from it. You know, in, in drama schools or whatever. You know, you work on it because it's such rich, incredible material, and that was the attraction. It was um, just the intensity and complexity of the material, and also the beauty. The beauty of the writing. It's really fine writing.
0: Is there, conversely, the risk that because it is so well known, if so many drama students, for example, have done scenes already, is there any concern that it may be over familiar for some audiences?
3: It's a really great question. I don't think so, because it's not actually produced very well, very often on medium or main stages. And I think that's because of the the subject matter. That it's, it's difficult to sell to subscribers.
0: Yeah. So, and the subject matter we're talking about a mother daughter relationship, uh, and we're talking about a daughter who is, has taken the decision to end her own life.
3: That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, the daughter, Jessie, uh, is in her late 30s, and she's decided that she has had enough and she's going to end her life. So, that's something that is uh, still in many ways, it was very much a taboo topic when. Norman wrote about it in the the early 80s. She said that it didn't really exist. Suicide didn't really exist as a topic she felt on stages or on television. And even though we see it more in our storylines now, it's not really, I, I think there's Elements that are still very taboo and it's a very prickly area. There are some schools that don't teach Hamlet to their high school students because they're scared of discussing the topic of suicide. They think it will plant ideas in teens' minds. And that's the exact opposite approach of what we need to be doing in our society. We need to be talking about disconnection. We need to be talking about isolation and uh, and suicidal thoughts or the act of suicide. Yeah, and
0: also uh, pointing out that the trauma uh, that... that those kind of losses cause as well.
3: Absolutely. And Norman did has experienced that trauma of losses in her life, of suicide of people she knows. It's the trauma of those losses that need to be talked about. And then what happens when we're not connecting with people around us and we ask, what's wrong? Are you okay, rather? When we ask, are you okay? Which is something that in our society we're trying to encourage people to say, to ask, are you okay? I think what people are really scared about is the answer. They're scared about what to do if the answer is no, and that taps into a larger zeitgeist of what we... of a a seismic shift that needs to happen in our society, which is valuing the care of people who need support.
0: Caroline, I'm taking a punt here. I'm assuming you're playing Thelma. Yes, I am. The character of the mother in the play. So for Thelma, the... uh, she's effectively trying to use every trick at her disposal to talk her daughter out of taking her life. So an emotional cut and thrust, and I imagine some emotional blackmail perhaps (laughs) at play as
2: well. Well, yeah, she does use every uh, strategy that she can kind of muster up at at the beginning of the evening she had no idea that this was how her Saturday evening was going to play out so yeah she she, you do see her trying to yeah use a vast array of, of, of tactics and also you know really moving attempts to try and get to the bottom of it, why Why is it happening, what's the matter with Jessie and, yes, how can she prevent this incredibly devastating action to occur? It's
3: really quite extraordinary the
2: array of tactics Mama tries, uh, Thelma tries,
3: because the, uh, the way Thelma is written is she likes to have a simple life, she likes life to go on, she doesn't want to stop and question, and yet the range of tactics she applies is... What any smartest, smartest member of the audience would try? We could buy a new dog. <laughs> Page fifty
2: nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, she liked that one dog, you know, that King dog. She she loved him, so maybe that would do it.
3: There's something wonderful about the domesticity of that, because that's what that's what suicide often is. It's going, it's trauma going on in people's lounge rooms every day, and it's that little detail in life that uh, Martha brings to it.
0: And we should also uh, point out that. Yes, there is trauma uh, and and anguish in this play, but there's also a, a kind of rich vein of humour running through it as well.
2: Yeah, there is, and that thank heavens for that because it, <laughs> it um, yeah, it it it, it may, has made the rehearsals a lot easier. I've had quite a lot of fun with. Marshmallows and um, snowballs <laughs> and yeah, various caramels and stuff, so that um, Thelma, Thelma has an oral drive. So you know that's been quite fun to play with. But also, yes, they're they're quite they're very grounded women, and they're quite witty and quite sharp at times. And yeah, that's it's that's beautiful to have that quality in the play,
3: and so important because that's how we deal with trauma in our lives as well. Yes, yeah, the comedy. Yeah.
2: yeah. Now uh reading some
0: reviews of the production both from the US and the UK, uh it's clearly divided some critics, uh, uh even in its original seasons or uh more recent productions. And I note there was a, a British production uh where uh the one of one kind of uh theatre critic observed that many critics see it as a play about a failed mother daughter relationship as opposed to just a mother-daughter relationship. Do you think this is a play about a failed relationship or is there much more to it?
3: I think this is a play about a failed mother-daughter relationship. I think that the suicide, as 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 paramount as it is, as the promise of suicide is in the play and as potent as it is, the vehicle through which we, tr- we travel that material is a failed mother-daughter relationship, which is something that every woman I know understands. As soon as I talk to them about the play, they say, oh, I understand that, I get that.
0: Caroline, do you see the character as a failure?
2: I I think, I I guess because I've had to approach the play from inside Thelma, I see it more that she's also... sub. um, What we're looking at is... Um, intergenerational trauma I suppose where Thelma herself has not been mothered well Mm. she she has not been supplied with the tools to be a good mother and so her own sense of lack her own sense of you know not being properly equipped not having been loved by her husband, having had a failed marriage, not really being equipped to know why all of that happened, but just, you know, moving on. She says this great line. She says, you know, I never knew enough to do half the things that I had to do in my life, but things happen and you do what you can about them mm-hmm. and you see what happens next. And I think that sums it up for me, you know, I guess in a more generous way of looking at at
3: her. Yes. Yeah. For the characters, and that's that's such an important experience for us. And I think that's what I would like the audience to know that when a relationship isn't working, it's not. It's usually and certainly not in this play. It's not for lack of trying. But in many ways, when we parent children or when as a society or individually we parent children, we are inevitably making mistakes and sometimes we repeat mistakes that were made when we were parented and sometimes we make new mistakes because we try and parent differently to how we were parented.
0: Bryony, in terms of directing a work like this, uh, talk to us about how you're depicting the the fragility and frustrations and the failures of this relationship on stage. Uh, uh, through, uh, through, in some uh, again to the one of the reviews I was reading talked about uh, how noticeable the lack of touch was between the characters, and that was clearly a directorial decision to say, kind of, there is so little to sustain the relationship between these characters. I will physically embody its absence on stage by having them stand apart by not having them touch one another. How have you chosen to kind of physically explore and convey kind of the, this, the, the the flaws and the frustrations of this relationship?
3: Yes. I think the first approach is to really look at each of the planes of existence in this play because dramaturgically from the outside it looks quite simple. It's a two-hander, 90 minutes. We're in there with a, a mother-daughter, super simple premise, as, as, as shocking as the premise may be. And yet, as you work your way through the text and those different planes, the physicality, for example, is really important. How do we have these two people in this space and we've we're, we're just we've decided to squish them into a space? How do we have these two people in a space who don't touch or who very rarely touch? What does that mean then when they do touch? What does it mean when they need to communicate with each other in a way that has Decades of patterns and rote materials, which means they're not really seeing each other. And then when you turn them to face each other, what does then that mean? So there's a lot of text analysis required to find your way through to that. And we have found large parts of the play have blocked themselves and other parts of the play have really needed care and exploration is to well, what do we do if we move them apart what do we do if we move them very close together and how far can they stay close together
2: well and one of the things Brian's been um, we've been playing with in the last week or so one once we've been running is um, not looking at each other at all for great sections of the play like so no eye contact but, yeah and that's been really interesting to to Work against the actor's natural inclination to to look and to speak to a person, but perhaps not the natural inclination of family members who know each other incredibly well and know exactly what other people might be doing or you know saying or looking like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and Caroline, you're acting opposite uh, Esther Van Dornham. Have you yes. worked
2: with her before? No. No, so that's been a great pleasure discovering a, an, another, another actor, another worker, another beautiful person. Yeah.
0: Given that you've got you're working with two actors who have not worked together before, but they have to convey kind of decades of shared experience, does that present a challenge?
3: It does. It's a wonderful challenge. And it did affect the way I approached the work and both Caroline and Esther approached the work. The table work section for this play was attuned really to the length of Shakespeare table work. It, it, was, it was really long. There was a lot of backstory and a lot of given circumstances. Marcia Norman is a real tease. She will place one or two clues and that's it. Or there may be two clues that seem at, at odds with each other. So we really worked on the, in the same room together, the backstory and the, the timeline of 40 to 60 years. And that meant that we were all on the one page. And then something happens that's very special when there's just two people in a play. They find their own rhythm and they find where they nestle, nestle up against each other and snuggle. And they find where they, where they catch and where there's friction. And they naturally have an ebb and flow the way they work together in an intimate space. And by the necessity of the work um, and our excellent communication and all checking in with each other, um, that's been our approach really.
0: The production that we're discussing is Iron Lung Theatre's Night Mother, written by Marsha Norman. Uh, It's running from the 7th to the 17th of August at Chapel Off Chapel, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran. And you can book by going to chapeloffchapel.com.au. I've been talking with director Bryony Dunn and actor Caroline Lee. Thank you both so much for joining us here in the studio.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Richard. And
0: uh, given that the themes of the play are about suicide, if any of the issues we've been discussing have disturbed you and you feel the need to speak to a counsellor about it, you can call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. I'm going to introduce my final guest for the morning, uh, Tilly Bolin. Is uh, here to talk about Disposable, which is the third in a series of exhibitions from Science Gallery Melbourne. Uh, Science Gallery Melbourne hasn't actually opened its own home yet, so what it's been doing over the last couple of years is a series of pop up installations exploring different themes. So we've had blood in the past, uh, we've had perfection, and now we're looking at disposable, uh, addressing through art and science and the beautiful point where they meet, the idea of waste and what we do with it. Tilly, welcome to Triple R.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Now, uh, it's nice to have somebody... uh Tilly and I were just talking off air uh, about community radio. Tilly's an ex-two uh, SER person I from Sydney.
4: Oh, indeed. So uh,
0: nice to to have a, somebody from a sister station here. Uh, it is
4: a... literally such a delight to walk into a community radio station. I miss it so much, and I love mm. the studios here. You guys have an excellent setup.
0: We're pretty lucky here. But yeah. uh, speaking of excellent setups, when Science Gallery Melbourne's open <sighs> opens next year, it's going to be pretty remarkable as well.
4: It's going to be absolutely gorgeous. So it's going to it's it's opening on the corner of Swanston and Grattan Streets, uh, so right there near the tram stop. It's in this thing called Melbourne Connect, where we've got an engineering fab lab. We've got the science gallery over two floors. We've got some student accommodation. There'll be a beautiful garden in the middle uh, called the Oculus. There's all sorts of things that'll be happening. It'll be a buzzing centre.
0: I love the fact, though, that even before it opens, it's kind of introducing itself to Melbourne through this series of kind of pop-up exhibitions, which are operating in different venues, different spaces, and exploring some of the the themes that Science Gallery will be representing. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a really good metaphor and it's just completely slipped out of my grasp, but that idea of... Uh, it's a growing be- be- ecology. Oh, yeah. Before you open your doors to someone, <laughs> yeah. you send out an invitation. It's kind of like, we will be at home receiving guests on this date. So you're kind of doing that, but doing it through a series of exhibitions instead.
4: Absolutely, we are. And so you mentioned before that we've had blood and perfection and those were both uh, mostly at one site. And this year we're really prototyping for the future and doing things in a weird and clever way which is very science gallery. So we are popping up over six different locations over the city and it's all kicking off this week. We've got three pop-ups open, one at the University of Melbourne Parkville campus where uh, there are four installations but one of them is called Urinotron. and it is a huge battery powered by human urine. That's a collaboration between these artists in France who came over and built this huge system with Professor Peter Scales at the University of Melbourne. So he's a chemical engineer and people are invited to come on campus and take a collection jar, bring us back some urine, and then you can plug your phone in and charge your battery with your powerful Wii. Fantastic. And
0: one of the things I love about this is is that it is encouraging us to think individually and collectively about what we can do with the culture of waste and excess that we all are a part of.
4: Exactly. And it's really surrounding us and becoming much more visible and people are talking about it more because we do have a huge problem with waste and we do have a huge problem with how we're going to tackle it. And at Science Gallery, we put young people at the centre of everything that we do. And so we think that they are the life force and that they are going to come up with these creative, positive solutions of rethinking our problem with waste. So over this whole month from the 1st of August to the 1st of September. We are taking pretty much a dumpster dive into possible solutions. Um, and there are lots of things happening throughout the city and throughout the month.
0: Now, one of the ones that intrigues me is the idea of what we do with excess plastic. We, Anybody who reads a paper at the moment would know that, I mean, seabirds are starving to death because their stomachs are full yeah. of plastic. There's the, the Great Pacific kind of garbage patch. Uh, whales are choking on plastic. It's everywhere. Mm. It's in our water systems. It's, uh, microfibres are in our bodies. But the idea that maybe there are insects that could eat plastic for us and kind of help solve this problem, Uh, the fact that the solution could be literally not necessarily under our noses, but under our
4: feet. Absolutely under our feet. Nature can save us from ourselves. So mealworms, the humble mealworm has a microorganism inside its gut that breaks down polystyrene. And so one of the installations we've got are these 12,000 wonderful mealworms that are munching through polystyrene and people can come and bring it in and add it to the installation as well. Um, And they, oh, they're not, uh, no mealworms are harmed during this process. They are surrounded by other sources of food as well, but they really just chomp straight through the polystyrene as well, breaking it down and down and down until um, it'll get closer and closer to compost. So, I'm not saying that we should all use polystyrene willy-nilly but this could be it's just one way of rethinking how we look at waste how we tackle it and what we're going to do in the future.
0: Now, one of the things that uh, impacts on our cities uh, is the the fact that people just casually flush things away because Oof. our toilets are there and we don't really think about what happens. Simil- similarly, we might tip oil down the sink and not really think about where it goes. Now, in London in 2017, uh, a congealed lump of fat... <laughs> the same size as 11 double-decker buses and stretching the length of two football fields <laughs> was blocking the London sewerage system. Now, the notion of fatbergs kind of makes me wince a little bit. It's a, it's a disgusting and gross amalgamation of cooking oil, of fat, of wet wipes that shouldn't really be flushed away mm-hmm. but still are, and that's a whole different legal issue that I know is, has been playing out this week. But Fatbergs are kind of, they're almost like uh, the embodiment of the throwaway excess culture that we live with. How is uh, the exhibition disposable at Science Gallery Melbourne exploring fatbergs and what we can do with them?
4: I'm so glad you mentioned your visceral reaction to it as well, because one of the things that we love to do is have difficult conversations. And uh, and and that visceral reaction that we all have to fat and to oils and to get these things away from us is one of the things that Fatberg, which is an installation happening right now at Testing Grounds at South Bank, is really looking into. So fat is an incredibly valuable resource, yet we feel so weird about it and gross that we throw it away and that causes all these huge infrastructure problems within our drains. And the fatberg is, uh, so this artist is within testing grounds is creating this fatberg in a huge acrylic tank where he's melting the fat and creating, and it's, It's so beautiful. I encourage, like, follow us on the socials, have a look, come down and see it, come and contribute to it. It is this gorgeous thing and it's about really confronting why we have this reaction to such an incredibly valuable resource and trying to think through how we can shape our understanding and our thought about how we might use it in the future so it's not throwaway. Although there's another installation down there called the Sewer Soapery.
0: Now I was going to mention this one because... uh, (laughs) It connects beautifully to an (laughs) art experience I had in Adelaide earlier in the year in which uh, I was encouraged to buy soap made of human fat.
4: Yes.
0: (laughs) I have a bar of it at home. I haven't been able to bring myself to wash with it yet. It's beautifully perfumed, gently textured. It's a luxury item made from kind of... Uh, liposucted, that's not quite a real word, but liposuctioned fat from uh, human bodies. Uh, The excess of the West is then Mm. delivered uh, as fat that can help maintain hygiene standards in underdeveloped countries. It's a fascinating artistic exercise. Here you have soap made of sewerage.
4: We sure do. And again, it's this beautiful, it's displayed on this gorgeous black sink unit. There are three different types of soap and everyone is invited to wash their hands with it right there. The soaps, the the original oil products for the three different soaps are an unused oil, palm oil, which comes with its own issues and problems, um, and then oils that uh, the artist, Catherine Sarah Young, um, went round and got from restaurants in in the Philippines. And then the third soap is made from uh, fats and oils that she went and harvested from the sewerage system in the Philippines, because they've got that same problem where people tip stuff down the sink, it blocks the sewerage system, it blocks the drainage system of a city, and it floods. And so she wanted to reshape and get attention and challenge people about, look, I've put this through a scientific process, it's totally safe, but you know it comes from the sewerage, as one of the products comes from the sewerage, would you still wash your hands with it? And if not, why not? These are valuable resources that we can use again. So come on down to either testing Grounds. Or we're part of a takeover of Parliament House during National Science Week. It's called Extrasensory. And you can come in and interact with all sorts of things like washing your hands with sewerage. Now,
0: one of the things that fascinates me about what Science Gallery Melbourne is doing is that by using the the kind of ick factor... It makes work more memorable and more playful as well. So instead of lecturing people about uh, we are killing the planet and we need to do something about it, encouraging people to think about their visceral response, their emotional response, to explore that and to use the power of that emotional response to then tap into some genuinely progressive ideas around how we can change the the culture of excess and waste that we live with. It's a, a really fascinating hook ...to bring people in and to hopefully make them continue to think about these kind of issues... Uh, long after they've walked away from the exhibition.
4: Absolutely. You've really hit on it there. And I'd say the only other thing in addition to that is that young people, being at the heart of everything we do, they are, so we call them our mediators, and they're the people who are at all of these exhibits to talk to people, to engage people in conversation. And when I look around the room at those young people, I actually turn from less of a cynic into an incredibly hopeful uh, idea about what our future might be because they are incredibly critical creative and they are coming up with powerfully positive ideas that are going to reshape how our world operates into the future.
0: Now, as well as thinking to the future, I know there's also one work in the exhibition, which is very much both of the now, but also looking back at thousands of years of, of living cultural heritage. Uh, and I love the fact because I, in the next week or two, I'm hopefully going down to Bujbim National Park to look at the Eel, the ancient eel traps down there yes. uh, in a newly uh, pronounced World Heritage yeah. Site that are older than the pyramids, older than yeah. Stonehenge, the, probably one of the oldest known aquaculture sites on the planet and in our own backyard just down near Portland. But indisposable, Disposable, this uh, exhibition from Science Gallery Melbourne, there is a work eel trap. Talk to us about this.
4: So this is our inaugural First Nations Commission where we get a really experienced Indigenous artist and they work with an emerging Indigenous artists and create a huge commission together. So this is Marie Clark working with Mitch Marnie and they are creating this huge eel trap made out of um, uh, 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 water reeds uh, harvested from the Maribyrnong River. And they're making it in gallery at the Footscray Community Arts Centre over the next three weeks and then we are all going to pick it up and place it in the Maribyrnong River. It won't be for catching eels, it'll be for catching rubbish that's going past. But they will be in gallery showing people how to weave uh, and contributing to the works All Wednesdays to Saturdays for the next three weeks, it is... An awesome experience.
0: There's also another uh, river cleaning robot.
4: Oh my goodness, yes. Later on in the month, we will be on the Yarra River and you can take control of Trash Robot. And so you can compete with your friends. Who's going to get the most trash out of the river in three minutes? You can also control it online if you're not in Melbourne. So make sure that you get onto our website and follow us on the socials um, to get in and have your turn collecting trash.
0: If you want to learn more. About- about any of the works we've talked about and more that are part of Disposable, the latest exhibition from Science Gallery Melbourne as it prepares to open its new home next year. You can jump online, melbourne.sciencegallery.com. Disposable is running from today through until the 31st of August. My guest has been curator Tilly Bolin. Tilly, I'm sure you've... Given that you're opening today, lots of running around and a lot... I mean, it's hard enough opening and curating an exhibition in one site, let alone six
4: different Six different Yeah, but the Science Gallery team is awesome. So the staff, the mediators, we're all in, all there. It has been a joy and a delight, as it will be for the whole month.
0: Well, it's been a joy and a delight having you on the program as well. Tilly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for
4: having me.